0: Welcome to session three of five attitudes to avoid when we're trying to cooperate with God. The third word that we want to talk about that we need to avoid is the idea of unreasonableness. Unreasonableness. Now, it doesn't translate that way in every translation, every version of the Bible. But there are some where it translates this way. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. And that's an interesting word. Let's read it in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. This is a very famous evangelistic verse. Come now and let us debate your case or... The word would also be translated, argue your case. But at the heart of it, it really is the word reason. Let's look at this argument. Let's look at that argument. And let's reason from that and draw out the truth. He says, if you can reason with me, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall become as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, They shall be like wool. And here's a take on the words we used in our last lesson. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now that's the New American Standard Bible, probably my favorite translation. In the King James, it reads like this. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will be as wool. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword. Now, um, what we're going to find out is that when God tells us to be reasonable, he's saying that you need to respond to my word in the right way. Um, I think, especially here in America, we have been so evangelized, perhaps more than any other nation on the face of the earth, we in our churches have often been educated far beyond our level of obedience. Um, And God says, I want you to take the truth and let's reason it out. You know, when you were in high school English, they taught you how to diagram sentences. And when you learn to diagram the sentences, you begin to understand exactly what was being said. Uh, Now, I didn't really understand. Well, it's not that I didn't understand. I understood, I did okay in English. I just wasn't interested in diagramming sentences. But when I took Greek, when I took New Testament Greek, that's part of your learning is you, you, dec- you parse and decline. You learn how to break that sentence down and what are the nouns, what are the verbs, what are the adjectives, what are the adverbs, what are the clauses? And there's a million and one clauses. And the reason they teach you that way instead of just teaching vocabulary, that's part of it too. But you have to understand how to break down the sentence to understand what the sentence is truly saying. Now, don't get me wrong. Greek isn't some mystical language where God says something that it sounds this way in English, but it's really something else. Greek and Hebrew aren't mystical languages, but they are different languages to most of us. And so it's very important for us to learn how to reason Out the sentence. And I think that, for instance, Hebrews, excuse me, Hebrews, Isaiah 55, verse seven to nine is a direct appeal to a different way of thinking. Isaiah 55, seven to nine, listen to the way it reads, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man, his thoughts, his reasonings, let us return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Now, God says, I want you to turn from your old way of thinking. I I want you to to return to the Lord so that he can have mercy on you. This takes us to Romans 12 where um, this is what Paul said. He said, don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the idea of a new reasoning, a new way of thinking, a new way of understanding. And, and he said in going back to Isaiah 55, uh, turn to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then he explains why you will be blessed if you change the way that you reason. Why do we need to change the way that we reason? For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, (coughs) so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And... I know that we love that verse. And whenever we don't understand something, we say, well, his ways are just higher than my ways and his thoughts higher than my thoughts. And boy, that is so true, even on an elemental level. But really at the heart of that verse that we love so much, what he's saying is the way you reason is not the way God reasons. The way you process is not the way God processes. So we have to be careful that when we get serious about our walk with God, we need to understand that God will never, I mean, I started to say something that's not true. I started to say God will never condescend to express himself on our level. No, he does that all the time. Thank God. He does come down to our level all the time. That's not what I meant to say. But what I meant to say is that Though God speaks to us, and he said that his way is so simple that a wayfaring man, even a child, can perceive and understand because God brings it down to our level. But when you begin to move forward, it's got to be his way. It's got to be his wisdom. And I think the lesson presented here in session three is best presented by moving directly to the Christian life lessons. Now, it's not often that I get to the Christian life lessons this quickly, but this is to lay out some things that will help you as, uh, as you process this before the Lord. In fact, there are basically two Christian life lessons that I want to share, but I want to share them in a little detail. Number one, everyone who comes to Christ must ultimately move past the offense of the mind. I have never found a Christian that was not called upon to move past the offense of the mind. You say, what do you you mean by that pastor? Well, there's some people that the way they think is is conducive to faith. It's conducive to the supernatural. There are some people when they look at the mysteries of God, they just say, well, this is God. I'm I'm not going to understand everything about God. I I just trust and believe. I trust and obey. And boy, what a gift that is. What a gift that is, and what a precious thing that is to have a mindset that is conducive to the ways of God. But sometimes we have either, maybe it's a personality, or maybe it's a way we were taught to think. Maybe it's due to our education. Um, But sometimes it's not easy for us to just move right into faith. We want to intellectualize faith or maybe analyze faith. We want to make faith say something more profound than God is even trying to say. Um, It it was um, John Wesley who said, I am so thankful. He was a very analytical man, uh, although he certainly did a great job with faith. It was John Wesley that said, I am so thankful that God said he so loved the world. I wanted him to say, I so loved John Wesley. But knowing me, I would think he's just talking about another John Wesley. So he kept it out here where I so loved the world. And that's a beautiful approach John Wesley understood what we all have to understand, whether we consider ourselves intellectual or, or, or simple, and that's not simple as in a simpleton, just some of us are just our process of thinking is different. At some point, on some level, sooner or later, we're going to have to realize that when we come to God, when we embrace his word, we have to move past the offense of the mind, We have to lay down what we want to analyze um, and and embrace. I I have a friend that's a great Bible scholar, and I'm surprised how many times he says, I just don't understand this book of the Bible, or I don't understand this passage of Scripture. And I thought, he has forgotten more about the Scripture than I know how can you say, I don't understand this book, or I don't understand that? And the more I listen to him, I realize, and he confessed to me, the, the tremendous struggle he has, because if he doesn't understand every word of a passage, he says, I don't understand it. If I understand it, I'll understand every word. And, and uh, he's a lot smarter than I am, but I tried to convince him it's, you don't throw it out and say, I don't understand it just because you don't understand every word. He said, what do you do? I said, every word I do understand, I celebrate. You know, it was, it was like uh, Mark Twain. I mean, um, yeah, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens. He said, you know, a lot of people say that they don't understand all the Bible. He said, that's never bothered me the part of the Bible I don't understand. He said, what worries me is the part of the Bible I do understand. And he was, he was very wisely saying, even though he may not have known what he was saying, if we're gonna be serious in our pursuit of God, we've gotta move past the offense of the mind. Jesus said something that, that sounds like a rebuke, but it's, I think it was more of a jab at a thought process. Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus just couldn't process that. And you know, Jesus said, and you being a teacher of Israel still do not understand this. Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, you are known for your understanding. And something this simple, you still don't understand it. Even when I break it down like this, I think it was Jesus' loving way of telling Nicodemus... The way of the kingdom is not understood by your intellect. The way of the kingdom is understood by the embracing of your heart. You know, tongues, I, I, I speak in tongues. I believe in tongues. It's the position of our church. We believe that every child of God can speak in tongues if they're filled with the Spirit. Um, I don't like to present it from the perspective that says if you don't speak with tongues, you're not filled with the Spirit. I, I know that's technically what the Assemblies of God teaches. But I think a better way of saying it is that if you are filled with the Spirit, you can speak in tongues. Sometimes we don't because we're afraid. We've had 40 years of teaching that tongues is of the devil and only the demon-possessed speak in tongues. There, I mean, there's a half dozen reasons people don't speak in tongues. But it's not because it's not for them. I, I don't believe that. Um, but I'm, I'm And I'm not... Trying to chide any of you in the study that, you know, if you don't speak in tongues, I don't think you're second class. I don't think you're anything negative at all. I'm just simply saying I believe tongues is a gift for everybody. Now, we know that the, the, the gift of tongues where you give a message in tongues to a congregation, that's not for everybody. Paul asked the question, do all speak in tongues? And the, the obvious answer was no. He says not everybody has that gift to speak in tongues and give a message to a congregation. But I believe every child of God has the ability to speak in tongues. It, it, sometimes it's just a matter of of finding that place where you can release. And I've known people that have gone years without speaking in tongues. And when they do speak in tongues, it's like, why in the world did it take me so long? And you can't explain it. You can't coach it. You know, I went to a service one time where somebody said, I'm said, I'm gonna teach you to speak in tongues. And I immediately said, I'm going to Shoney's because I am not gonna be here when the lightning starts, you know. But... Um, but I'll tell you what I have found about speaking in tongues. I have found that almost without exception, you have to get past the offense of the mind. You have to get past the offense of what tongues represent. And, and it's, it's not always an easy thing to do. It's like in the Old Testament, Jesus illustrated this principle of the offense of the mind in another way. And I see it so often in the warfare tactics of the Israelite army. God gave them some strange battle instructions. Now, some of them were brilliant militarily and are still studied today. Joshua's campaigns. I had always heard this and I asked, a graduate of West Point. If it was true, I said, "Are the are the campaigns of Joshua really studied today?" He said, "Yeah, they really are. They're really studied in basic uh, infantry tactics." He said, "They're they're still studied, but there are some things that are weird. Um, you know, go over here and don't move till the wind starts blowing. You know, do this not this." Um, Uh, the, The army is about to die of dehydration and the prophet says bring me a song man and he begins to worship and he changes the spiritual climate and in the morning all of the holes that they were commanded to dig are filled with water, miraculously. You had to get past the offense of the mind. Naaman is a good illustration of of becoming reasonable. Um, Naaman was a leper. You know the story. He goes to Elisha the prophet with a letter from the king, uh, his king in Syria. Um, um, and, And the king in Israel arranged for him to go to the prophet. And he is angry, number one, because the prophet won't come out and talk to him. He just uses his servant. And he tells him to go to the Jordan and dip seven times. And you know Naaman's response. Uh, It was one of complete unreasonableness. He says, there are rivers in Syria that are prettier than the Jordan, that are better than the Jordan. If I'm on dip, I'm gonna go there. And one of his junior officers said, sir, if they commanded you to do some weird thing, and some difficult thing, wouldn't you have done that? He said, so how much more so should you be willing to just go and dip seven times in the river? What was he doing? He was making an appeal for Naaman to be reasonable. You know, think differently. Remember, that's what we mean by being reasonable. Think differently than what your instinct tells you to do. And you know the story, the beautiful story. Naaman went and he dipped seven times. And when he came up, his skin was clean like that of a child. He had to learn the process of becoming reasonable. Um, I remember the idea of, becoming reasonable and becoming willing. And when, when I was in, uh, oh, I don't remember if it was VBS or if it was in Sunday school class, but I was just a little fella, uh, probably in first or second grade, I don't remember. But uh, old Brother Milligan in my home church told us a story. He said it was about a rich farmer that had everything you would think you would ever want all the money you could, he could never spend it in his lifetime. And he said that something bothered this farmer and it just really got his goat. He said, I've got everything, but I'm not nearly as happy as my farmhand over here. He's happy all the time. He's singing all the time. He's smiling all the time. He said, I never sing. I never smile. He's happy and I'm not. I've got everything. He's got nothing. He said, I just can't stand it. And finally he went up to his farmhand and he said, I just want to ask you this. And I don't want to ask it around anybody else. Why are you so happy all the time? What would I have to do? to be as happy as you, you have no reason to be happy. I have every reason to be happy, but I'm not and you are. Explain that to me. And the farm hand was standing there with his foot on the railing around the hog pen. And he said, well, boss, I can tell you this. If you wanna be as happy as I am, you gotta be willing to get in that hog pen and wallow around till you're covered in slime and mud and filth from head to toe. If you're willing to do that, you can be happy. And the farmer said, that's stupid. That's unreasonable. That's foolish. And he said, I'll never do that. And the farmhand just, well, I don't know what else to tell you. And weeks went on where he kept, every time the farmhand smiled, it made him angry. Every time the farmhand sang, would sing a song, it would make him angry and one night the horses started kicking up in the barn and the dogs started barking and the old farmhand went out of his humble dwellings to see what was going on and there was the farmer climbing over into the hog pen and he said boss what are you doing he said i can't take it anymore he said i've got to get some happiness in my life you said i had to wallow in the hog pen i'm going in the hog pen and the farmhand kind of laughed and pulled him off the fence and said, no, sir, I never said you had to wallow in the hog pen. I just said you have to be willing to wallow in the hog pen. And the farmer looked at him and he said, he said, sir, this is not about anything you can do. This is about you being willing to do whatever God says. And the farmer, as you might guess, discovered the joy of the Lord. And boy, that helped me so much as a young child in my my developing faith is I just have to be willing. You know, it goes to that idea before we go to the second life lesson, it goes to that idea of meekness. You know, it says that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Moses does not strike me as what I think of as meek. When I think of meek, I think of weak. I think of, uh, I th- I think of uh, Barney Fife, you know, when I think of meek. Um, I think of a-, a person that has no assertiveness. But what I found out as I studied the word is that the word meekness is almost always associated with a creature of strength. You know that when the great horses of the Middle East were tamed and trained, that they were called or are said to be meeked. They were meeked. And that didn't mean they had lost their strength. It meant their strength had come under control. And when the scripture says that Moses was the meekest man on the whole earth, he wasn't, he wasn't a weenie boy, you know. Uh, it, as I've said before, my pastor used to say, Moses would send people to hell with their clothes on, you know. He was powerful. He wasn't weak but he was under the control. There, there were, uh, oh boy, I, I can't remember the tribe. It was, a, it was a Central European tribe that were known for the control they had over their horses. And they would fight with both hands on horseback. They didn't have, they didn't use, I mean, they had them, but they didn't use the reins when they were in battle. And what you found out is that the horses always, seemed to know exactly what to do, even though the riders did not have their hands on their mane or on the reins. The horses just seemed to have a, a sense of what to do. And what had happened is that these riders knew, us, and the horses had been trained with a systematic um, sensitivity to the movement of the heels of the riders in their side. So all they had to do is, was poke the horse a certain way and the horse knew to go, to go right or left or to stop. There were eyewitnesses that these horses would even stand over fire that would, that would begin to burn them, but they would not move until they got a signal to move. And those horses were said to be meat. They were massive beasts powerful animals, but they had come under the control of another. And it's the idea of, in a a very fleshly level, the idea of overcoming the offense of the mind. Now, so here's number one, everyone who comes to Christ, um, if we're going to be reasonable, we've got to ultimately move past the offense of the mind. Number two, and this is the last thing, forever and always, we can only approach Him on his terms. We can only approach him on his terms. Now you're about to get into your own study, so I'm not going to read this long passage of scripture, but I want to direct you to Romans 1, verses 21 to 32. Romans 1, 21 to 32. And it is the scripture that tells us, you know what, I am going to read it because I don't think I can do it justice by by just telling it to you, because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Paul's talking about the fallen nature of man. Neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts, creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own heart to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. These people changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman. They burned in their lust toward one another, men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error, which was fit as God even... As they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient an unreasonable view of life. He says, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness and covetousness, maliciousness, full... Of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, and vendors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Man, that's, that's not what you want on your resume. And they know the judgment of God. That they which commit such things are worthy of death, but they not only do these things, but have pleasure in them that do them. What we find from this passage that I just read, the simplest takeaway is this. A lot of times we like to list the sins and say this is, this is the progression from bad to worse. That may be inferred here, but what's at the heart of this passage is this. When man says, I will make God in my image, And I will change the rules. That is a step of unreasonable thinking that leads to destruction. As we get ready for you to continue your study, I want to remind you of a story I've often told. And it was a story of a world-renowned sculptor, uh, probably a century or more ago, that made... Um, a, a, a carving of Christ on the cross, and it was disproportional. It was ugly. Uh, it, it, nothing seemed to be right. It was just disproportional. Nothing seemed to match the other, and it was viewed by some as dishonoring Christ on the cross. It was. It was like. Uh, um, Some modern art had just desecrated the cross. But what you found out is that it was designed exactly that way because this is what the intent of the artist was. Everything looked disproportional. Everything looked horrible until you moved to a place right at the foot of the cross. You knelt and then you looked up. And when you knelt at the foot of the cross and looked up, I don't know how it was done, but all of a sudden, everything looks proportional. Everything looks right. And what this artist was trying to do was to tell us, you can analyze the cross from your wisdom, you can analyze the cross from your perspective, but the only way to understand Jesus is to kneel before him. And when we kneel, that brings things back into proportion. So keep studying, keep opening your heart. Remember that as you seek for God to bless you, there are things we want to avoid. And the lesson in session three is that we must learn to think his thoughts and we must not mistake our reasonableness for his reasonableness because our thinking is described as being unreasonable. Okay. God bless you.